Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. We're back. I, I mean, it's extraordinary that I'm smiling right now. Does it sound like I am? <laughs> I'm laughing a little. I don't even know why. I woke up so depressed on a Sunday in, in a weekend to just feel bummed and not even sure about any reason to get up. And I just want to say that. I knew I was going to say it. Geez, welcome to the podcast, everybody. You're going to die. <laughs> and I'm depressed. Who's going to keep listening to this? No, 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 no. Please. It's worth it, this episode. It is. But I do want to be honest. Uh, it feels nice to be here to talk with you and get back into another episode and share with you this really special and wonderful interview with L.V. Pepper and... And, and, and I want to just be like, ooh, it felt like this today. We're in the middle of a pretty serious lockdown right now with spiking numbers of coronavirus cases. And I just miss being with other people and have found ways to safely gather. But right now it's intense. And so I haven't really seen anybody but my family for a while, it feels like. <laughs> but... I guess in a way, I'm smiling a little because I get to do this, and it does feel like a tiny portal into other lives, which I think the, hopefully, feel of the episode gives to you, and so in some ways, I am transported, you know, I get to close my eyes and talk like I'm with you, sitting across from you, wherever you are, with whatever you're going through, so I am glad to be here, I am grateful for this outlet right now. And thanks for listening, even though it's both a threat, uh, you're going to die, could feel that way sometimes, <laughs> and the host of the show is depressed sometimes. Whatever. Can you just stick it out with me for today? Okay, thank you. So just a few disclaimers for this interview. Let's see, where to begin? I met the guest at a wedding. They were the Zoom officiant at Chelsea Coleman and Nick Jana's wedding. And it was a socially distanced wedding. Uh, I actually got to attend in person safely with a mask. This is months ago. And I only got to attend because I, I was the chauffeur for the photographer. I was like, yes, fine, I'll do it, whatever. Do you need a caterer? Do you need someone to clean the toilets? Uh, I, whatever you need. I want to do it. I want to be there. And I got to be, but I got to witness the guest officiate that wedding. At the time, I met them as Olivia Pepper. I'm just going to skip all the stuff kind of round my way back to some things. But right now, I want you to know that by the end of my interview with Olivia Pepper, I knew to call them L.V. Pepper. And that's just from hearing the story of their discovery of their name in this life and this world. And it felt right to become better friends through that little measurable shift and you can find Olivia Pepper online, but there's also a spelling of the name that's O-I-L-B-H-E, and you can pronounce that L-V. So just as far as the name goes and you're connecting up to the guest after you listen to the podcast, something to keep in mind, a couple different ways you might come across them on social media and online. Uh, for example, my first introduction to 
LV is through a treatise posted on Medium by Olivia Pepper, and it's called What It Feels Like to Be Cut in Half, a treatise on racialized responses to COVID-19 from a mixed indigene sorcerer and medicine person in the early days of the plague time. I'm not sure anything I could say right now could sum up what that 20-minute read did to me. And I've read it a couple times now. All I can say is I'm going to put the link in the liner notes. You should definitely read that. I've said enough. Next thing I want to mention that connects to the tagline for that essay is what LV Pepper is doing in the world. LV sent me this description of her work. LV Pepper is an esoteric investigator, storyteller, and practitioner of indigenous futurism. They rarely know what they are doing, but it is usually something that is important to someone. Life is fragile and loving it is the way to redemption. So I think it's just another way of explaining how far-reaching Elvie's spirit and being in the world is and how uncontained, which I love and I want more of those kind of people in my life. So uh, that's that. Something to keep in mind. We never got to talk about what any of these things meant. We talked for almost two hours and we never talked about quote-unquote work, the work that LV Pepper does. So if you want to find out more about that, connect up to LV on the back end of this podcast interview and uh, you can you can discover that on your own. I think the interview will make you want to. And then I did want to go back and say another introductory moment I had with LV was during one of our open mics. And LV signed up to share some poetry during that open mic. Some of that poetry you'll hear later in the episode. And it was really like an invitation to be friends listening to her read that poetry. I just right now can imagine I'm thinking back to the moment. It looked like she'd curled up in a enough of a ball of a human to sit on her own keyboard of her laptop computer and still be in the camera frame, boxed in, reading in the warm glow of some light, probably a candle, her words. And I just remember closing my eyes and letting that warmth, both of the glow, like we both are near the same candle, and her words touch me and move me. And I think you'll feel the same way when you listen to her poetry at the end here. And then lastly, before you listen, just a note about suicide. Uh, We touch on that topic. Suicide ideation is definitely running through some of this content. So heads up if you need to stop listening. Understood. And and if you need to prepare yourself for that, just just be prepared. It, It does come up. I'm so glad your ears are here for another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast LV Pepper is going to die. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Ned. How are you doing today? Um, I started out this morning with a pretty good cry out in the yard under the cottonwood trees. Um, kind of exhausted by the current public health crisis and a lot of the conversations that I have been in as a result of that. And, um, 
just the different ways that I'm feeling about the about how people are responding to it or not responding and um yeah some of the challenges around that I think the biggest feeling that I had was that um I might never see my father again who is still living but he is uh 76 and I am I was listening to podcasts and reading things about the possibility of a vaccine um and I am not somebody who probably would be a very good candidate for the vaccine because of having an autoimmune condition that is like infl- involves inflammation. Mm-hmm. So I probably won't be eligible to take it for a really long time. And if if ever, so I might have to wait until like the general populace is inoculated, mm-hmm. which feels, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, a miracle is like just around the corner and just hang in there. It's going to be less than six months. Uh, and I'm just like, well, you know, probably not for me. Um, and the shortest amount of time that we've ever actually uh, successfully created and administered a vaccine for something is for months. And it took four years. First, you said maybe you could cry more or need to cry more often. Yeah. And do you think that actually, do you actually think that? Um, I really believe that I probably should cry more often. I really believe that everyone should probably cry more often. There was (laughs) a period of time where I was wanting to do this uh, grief prayer practice where I decided that I would try to cry every day. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was going to be like I would force myself to cry every day, you know, like... I wanted to just have like crying scheduled and I would sit down and I would just do it. Um, yes. And <laughs> I'm just like, how did that go? Tell me how that went. Well, so the way that it went was that I realized that at that time it was actually kind of like too much for me. Mm. Um, I sometimes tend to run in this really like erratic emotional current if you're like really close to me regularly you can see these little glimpses of uh like this mania about getting things done or accomplishing things and then I'll slip into this sort of reverie of like deep sadness and then I'll yank myself out of it by like planning something or anticipating something else or accommodating Mm. someone else's needs I think that I deliberately kind of steer away from my own sadness because I'm a little bit afraid that there is no bottom to it. I think I know that there's no bottom to it. Mm. It's like, you know, thinking about diving into like a very deep, well, I think of one of those like cenotes down in Mexico Mm -hmm. where not only is it unfathomably deep, but also like there are bodies down there. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are, I was talking to a friend yesterday who happens to be a, a guy and he admitted he hadn't cried in a year 
the last time that he cried was a year ago and I could just couldn't just completely just dumbfounds me to, to meet anyone that, that only cries that much. And I think he didn't admit this. In fact, I couldn't call him out on it, not being healthy. I don't know for sure, but I do think sometimes people don't want to go into that part or that emotion because it might be infinitely deep. But then when I heard you talking about it, I was thinking, you know what? It's not, it, maybe it's not infinitely deep, but it's constantly current. It's this current that there is depth to it and dark, dark bottoms, but it just continually flows. It never stops flowing. And in a way, it's a version of what you're saying. It's like, there's no stop to it, but maybe there is a bottom and maybe that's where the bodies are laying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, for being a relatively young person, I have known a huge number of people who are dead. Um, and in the year 2012, 18 people that I knew died that year. But I do remember at a certain point in that year, I think it was in the summer, maybe, um, a friend had died of a drug overdose in the spring. And um, we all agreed that he was having a really difficult time kind of like moving on spiritually. Um, Our kind of general consensus was that maybe our friend didn't really fully know that he was dead. Um, We were having all of us kind of a lot of dreams or like feelings that he was around and um, people were having sightings of him out on the street and it was getting really bizarre. And um, finally I had to do this. um, I don't know if it was just admitting it to myself or, you know, what the context of this real, like, magic actually was. But I just basically had to go out in the garden and tell my friend that he was dead and that he needed to, like, stop coming over. Mm. Um, And at that point, when I was, you know, this is like five months or six months after his death. um, At that point, when I was out in the yard and I was just, you know, like, you have to stop showing up, you're dead. Like somebody has to let you know you are dead. Mm -hmm. You've died. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of broke the tide wall for me. And uh, this grief flooded me and I had a very intense experience with it. And I had a rejection of the pain and grief that I was feeling where I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't like this. This is upsetting to me. I don't like that people are dying unexpectedly and I'm feeling this um, hollowness and and sorrow and loss around it. And I had this very powerful um, reconciliation at that time, which was I had a choice, which was I could either stop grieving or I could stop loving people like in my life. Mm-hmm. because I was like, well, as life goes on, <laughs> people mm-hmm. are going to keep dying. People yeah. that I love are going to keep dying. And so I can either pull back from loving people mm-hmm. or I can get more comfortable with grieving them. Yeah. I think that it is deeply important to have regular occasions where 
emotions are kind of publicly scheduled. Uh, I love the folkloric traditions around certain like saints days and parades and these heritage holidays that I spend my time reading about um, in kind of anthropological social history because they are avenues or openings to people having public displays of emotion. And a lot of them also involve these very clever sort of tricks uh, for people to be able to occupy those roles, like having certain um, ritual roles that people take on in which they must portray certain emotions if they are to play the role well, you know? Yeah, right. Um, And yeah, I just think about that in like functional kind of tribal society, how the the elders would kind of like look around the community and, you know, maybe they would be like, okay, so we have this sacred play coming up where there's this processional and there needs to be like a monster who is lonely and uh, screaming in his isolation, but he's also terrifying. And then there needs to be this like uh, damsel who is like, beautiful and kind of austere and sought after and they would look around and they would be able to see like who in the community needs to have that emotional experience they would be like okay here's like olivia needs to be this monster who feels like so alone and hideous but like so full of grief and anger and is like chasing this experience you know because maybe they can see that i'm a little bit more buttoned down or reserved and have a hard time expressing in front of others but I'm also really interested in being of service. So they would give me this like monster head to wear and let me just like scream and chase people for six hours while I'm weeping. (laughs) Hey everybody, sorry to pop in here again in the middle of everything, but I wanted to just take a moment to pause and breathe and uh, talk to you about uh, our sponsor. You're going to die the podcast sponsor. Uh, We still don't have one, but it's made possible because of listeners like you, you know, whatever you got out of this thing today, you're thinking someone popped in your head, just send it over to them, share it. That's how this thing matters is by being in people's ears. You can also go on to, iTunes slash Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Those ratings and reviews help us to no end. It doesn't have to be perfect. You can be honest and offer feedback. I'll, I'll read those and I'll, I'll integrate the, the learning. And you can do that literally on your phone if you're listening to this through Apple Podcasts now. It's just a matter of clicking the star and clicking the write a review. And then lastly, if you want to support You're Going to Die, the podcast, and You're Going to Die in general, in general, you can go to www.yg2d.com and just click on donate. And through there, give a little money through PayPal. You can also use Venmo at yg-2d and say you want this to go to the podcast, whatever, whatever donation or contribution you're sending our way. But you can also support our other programs like Alive Inside, our prison program, letter writing right now with the men at San Quentin, and our hospice program, Songs for Life. Songs for Life is our music 
and hospice program, sending musicians to play for patients at the end of life. Anyway, you can check all that out on our website and you can find out more about our events, but all the support we can get, whether it's spreading the word about what we do or contributing to our 501c3 nonprofit, we appreciate all of it. Thank you so much. More than anything, I'm just glad to be in your ears right now, thinking a lot about how this pandemic has affected us and feeling particularly depressed today, waking up in the middle of a stronger lockdown than we've experienced of late. And knowing that I need to commit to that, which means mainly just being with my family, who are great people. But we weren't made for this limited amount of connection and being with others. And I'm feeling that today more than usual. Just trying to make room for it. Knew I'd probably need to address it here on the podcast. And feel finally kind of good, actually. like Or at least something shifted. I feel a little lighter and more present. And I can feel the emotion behind all of that, too. But I wanted to take a second to acknowledge that. And fittingly, Chelsea Coleman a few weeks ago, if you don't know who Chelsea Coleman is, you can listen to some of the older episodes and hear from her more. She's the CFO for our nonprofit and lots of, lots of, lots of other things. Definitely one of my favorite people in my life and one of the favorite people I've met and become close to in this You're Going to Die unfolding. But she sent me this recording of her in her kitchen. And I loved it. I've listened to it so many times already. And it felt like right now, anytime it would be cool to integrate it into a podcast suddenly. But especially during a time when we're not able to go into other people's homes like we used to as often. I'm definitely missing that. So for this little break in the podcast today, I wanted to go be with Chelsea in her kitchen as she prepares and cuts and cooks. Maybe we could all just kind of be with her for a, a little while in her home, like we're allowed, and we're not breaking any lockdown rules. We're just together with our eyes closed, imagining being in that space. I already feel better than I have all day.
I am definitely going to die. Um, okay. And I, I don't know that that'll be the end, but I do know that I'll die. Mm. Um, I don't, I am agnostic when it comes to like what happens after, if there even is an after. I kind of think time is like a, a mess, like a, a, a construction of like our organic forms and it's a false construct and mm-hmm. I work a lot in temporal philosophy so I kind of think that it's not really an afterlife in as much as like I don't know a concurrence that can happen I think the body tethers us to a sort of linear experience mm-hmm. um so once the body's gone who knows what the fuck happens um yeah it's kind of my my feeling um but the, my body will die I'm certain of that um there's this sort of suicidal ideation that will come upon me sometimes when I'm just very like tired or things aren't mm-hmm. quite going my way where I'm just like, well, I guess I'll just hang myself then. Like, it's like this kind of like, fine, I'm tired of dealing with living and I'll just go die. Yes, I, I can relate to that, uh, <laughs> that thought. And so, but like, so today I was like a little bit annoyed that I have that. So the biggest thing is that like, I'm a pretty high risk person for COVID-19 for a number of uh, reasons that are frustrating for me because I'm kind of a control oriented person. Um, Not having control of my physical body has been an incredibly deep learning experience for me. I've been dealing with basically like a mystery illness for the past few years that has at times like forced me to walk with a cane and like, you know, there's just been a lot of shit. Mm. And I, so I feel this fragility in myself. Um, And the thing is, is that I'm, most days I'm utterly unafraid of death. This is even before the sickness. Like, I'm not scared to die. Um, but I don't like that it could come at any time. <laughs> like, that yeah. irritates the shit out of my, like, controly planny side. Yes. And so I think sometimes that, like, my suicidal reactions are this way of, like, taking control back kind of yeah like yeah i'm like shit's starting to not go the way i want it to i'll just end it all (laughs) yes this is mine i'm taking it it's not coming at me it's not being done to me uh i'm gonna do it yeah so like because i just i'm just moved to a new place and i had my partner just join me here over the like just recently the past few days and um so there's all this really exciting stuff happening in my life And then I also just, I try not to let it rule over me by any means, but everything that's happening with public health, I sometimes have these paralytic moments where I'm like, oh my God, I could get it. And then I could die without like realizing that I'm about to die. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just like pisses me off. (laughs) Yeah. There's something I've been thinking about. I've been considering the possibility or wondering about death actually existing as something we do and not as something that happens to us 
it's strange, right? Because it's the same thing as like time and, and that we're in these bodies. It's all linear. So when death comes, it just is the thing nature has done to us. But is there a possibility or some way that that occurrence is actually a version of us doing it? Not even choosing it just immediately removes what I'm even trying to wrap my head around. But that there's a thing that we are, we're doing. It's not something that happens to us. And it's being done right when it's supposed to be done by us. Yeah. I mean, I think like I, I'm not a full on like spiritualist in the um, tradition of that as like a, a religious path, but they are really the folks who are kind of responsible for the popularizing the concept that we as souls, we like perceive our entire life's trajectory prior to incarnating here. So we're kind of like shown birth, Mm -hmm. family, accomplishments, death. And then we basically say like, yeah, cool. I'll take that one. Let's do it. Um, So there is this idea that I am in intimacy with that I might there, there's a larger me that does know when I'm going to die. Right. And the mechanics of our little human brain just leans into the like, I'm going to just die someday and that's going to happen to me. And that actually is the voice of the body that is not the bigger thing that you just described. It's just like this little vehicle that actually kicks back and throws tantrums and suddenly bursts into tears or doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I have my death like very planned. This is only the past few years that I have had this because up until a few years ago, I um, sort of subconsciously anticipated that my life would end in suicide. And I think I abstractly placed that somewhere in my 40s, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a really close friend of mine ended his life. Uh, He was actually like my first love. And ironically, we used to call each other Hamlet and Ophelia. And so when he died... That was when he and I had had a bit of an adolescent suicide pact. And so when he ended his life, I was in the middle of writing a novel in the woods, living in the wilderness alone. And I had no electricity and no running water, got news of his death. And I was basically just like, well, I guess I have to kill myself now. This is happening a little earlier than I expected. And then I was not exactly making preparations to do that, but I just was sort of like, okay, well, when is it going to be? Like, when am I? Sometime in the next couple of weeks, I guess. And then I just was like, no way. I'm like, not ready. Like, I don't want to fucking die. And I had this very powerful experience where I was like, no, I actually don't want to kill myself. And mm. I, I'm going to plan this other death instead. So Uh, I was like, let me just plan out this like super luminous death that I can think about very fondly. So when I think about my own death, usually I get very excited. And um, today my whole thing with death was that I was like, you just need to like wait until, <laughs> wait until I've I've said that we're gonna meet, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Don't just barge in here and like <laughs> take me from COVID because I'm planning yeah. to die <laughs> on Michaelmas just after my 88th birthday in a wrought iron bed on a hillside in Tuscany. Great, it's all clear. I mean, it's like it is a it is wildly actually matches what I described about us doing our death eventually. This is your su- version of suicide is that you've described it all, that you know the place, that you created the moment. 
So, oh, this is a thing that Nick might have told you about me telling Nick this in 2012. It was when I was, when all my friends were dying, Nick was in town for South by Southwest. He was super depressed. I stayed up all night talking with him. He was torn up about matters of the heart. And at a certain point, probably at like 4.45 in the morning, I turned to him and I said, Nick, death is everyone's one true love. And he was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I said, death always comes for you. Mm -hmm. And it accepts you no matter what condition you're in. And it never, it never abandons anyone. It walks with you, watching you your entire life. And no matter what you've done, no matter how awful you've been, no matter how ugly you are or decrepit, broke, lonely, pathetic, whatever, death will take you because death loves you and wants you back. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Yeah. And I know death loves me and and it's going to be nice when we're reunited, but I am also like, please don't interrupt me because I have stuff that I'm working on. (laughs) Yeah. You're, 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 you are in relationship then with death, you know, the idea of like coming to meeting death eventually, you're describing someone who's doing the work of having that best friend be with you now or that lover be with you now and have a conversation. Like I do, I respect you. I promise I will give you what we agreed to, but can you do it like this? And that why would anyone say that that's not possible to have that conversation and have that sacred agreement, even down to the detail of the end, which, I mean, it's it's probably crazy to say this, but I just can't wait to find out how you die. <laughs> I don't really feel like illness and death are necessarily the same spirit. Mm. So, like, I think that people... I think that there's this big, big, like kind of an infestation of illness spirits everywhere. And I don't think it's the same as the death spirit. I think sometimes the death spirit is just like, okay, illness spirit, like you've made this body suffer enough. Like I'm going to stop this from happening anymore. Um, It reminds me of this story that I heard from a mentor about the first time that he ended uh, any being's life was when he was, I think about 13 or 14, he caught some other boys torturing a rabbit. Um, And the rabbit had been like injured pretty badly by whatever it was that they were doing. There was, I think some barbed wire involved and there was just this horrible kind of cruelty. And there was, they were laughing about the rabbit's confusion and fear And um, my mentor just went and like, this was a moment where he gained a big reputation in the community. Um, And this is an indigenous community, but he just went and like, he was weeping, like tears were running down his face. And he just walked into the middle of them and he just took the rabbit and just like crushed its neck. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's like how I think about death sometimes is like Mm -hmm. these other sort of afflicting spirits like addiction or poverty or illness or loneliness or depression. Like they're like 
tearing at this rabbit and like laughing at it while it's like flipping around and like tangled in barbed wire and doing its horrible rabbit scream. And then death just comes in and is like, why are you being so cruel to this? Like, and it's just like, and like snuffs it out. Yeah. And then fitting to me when I, and we hear these stories of people feeling those moments in near death experiences of the light and the gratitude and the love that comes in when you're going, that that would be the lead part of the experience and that death would be bringing that (laughs) feels very right. Yeah. I like that a lot. I mean, you just like changed my mom's death, you know, like you just using those words and telling all that it, 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 it it changed, it changes deaths that have happened Mm. thinking about my mom and just knowing the cancer and how, wrecked her body was yeah by that last day of her life Mm. and then the 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 love that took her away Mm -hmm. yeah my plan when i (laughs) when my plan at 88 and hopefully i'll be able to get this out anyway even if it happens earlier it's 88 yeah 88 is the year that i want to go out um but you know and and hopefully these words will be able to emerge regardless, but you know, we'll see. It's, it's what I want to say is I want to say, um, <laughs> uh, I welcome the great compassionate one. That's my, that's my plan. Yeah, you even got it down to the, the last words. Yeah. Thanks for letting me hear them. Mm-hmm. Three poems, a hymn, beeswax and candlelight and me sleeping in my bed. I am here and dreaming dear and you are with the dead. Your hands that once were laced with scars and your eyes since birth so full of stars. You followed the psychopomp where'er he led, down, down, down to the world of the dead. If they told Orpheus in reverse, made the casting more diverse, a woman fords the river Styx or gives the devil 50 licks. I could have been your holy nurse, would not have looked back, could have broken the curse. But alas, my sweet old love, I know how when push comes to shove, a man cannot ask, cannot beg, cannot plead. And thus no would-be savior can intercede in the gun in your mouth or results thereof. So now Orpheus sings to the roots while Eurydice listens helplessly from above. The Beats. Poor Jack died vomiting his own blood in Florida. He was working on another story and drinking malt liquor at 11 a.m., 47 and paunchy, cheerful at first, with a fine golden light coming in around the palms. And they tried so hard to save him, but he never woke up after they started surgery, and now 
how legions of would-be poets pour liquor on his grave and melt the Massachusetts snow. And Neil by then was gone already, found comatose by the train tracks in Mexico, running for years and stuffing his handsome face with whatever drugs he could score. Their lights turned off one by one, as if they were little boys whose mothers had told them to stop reading and go to bed. They had sought God together, but they became, kind of, black and white princes of hell with their arms always around scared teenagers, masters of nothing, not even themselves. Those of us still living tend to memorialize my friend Hoff with quotes from them, because he loved the words so much, the space, the whole vibe of it all men, he said when I first asked about Dharma bombs, and he died with a needle in his arm on a beautiful winter day when I warmed my palms against a coffee cup spiked with rum, and I fell on the floor crying right away when she called me and said, Hoff passed. He overdosed, and he's gone. I wondered about Jack and Neil that day. I wondered why this giddy disease, an animate corpse with a carnival mask, gnaws the heart of almost every artist I know. I went outside and wrote something. The trees were perfect against the very blue sky. Eventually, I quit drinking and went to live by the sea. Everyone I loved slowly drank poison calling out to each other through throbbing air. Isn't this so much fun? The call. Hello, is there anybody there? I speak prayers into a broken receiver or great deceiver, a forgotten booth whose frame is broken and has offered as tokens the old runes away to the biting wind. So now the arch above my head proclaims in blue and white it frames home booth. Hopeful I am zeroing in on a rescue. Please, operator, come and find me. Can you? I am lost. God has abandoned the switchboard, or high winds have damaged the lines, or technology has advanced to a point where this place is behind the times. Same, 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 a shame. These temples are in ruins. The prophets speak into hollow spaces full of air and terror and the errors of the past. The slings and arrows, wings of sparrows, folding as they land upon the empty lines. This whole country was once hard at work on this humming infrastructure, a cunning architecture, a topographical lithograph of roadways, segways, and I'll be back in a few days. And now these old Sybil stations, once futurist creations, where in ancient days was a truth foretold, they weather, fall apart, or nurture moss and mold. The kingdom deserted, the listeners gone, and me and my last quarters alone, keening along with that old tone. Liar, liar, pants on fire, hang them on a telephone wire. Mediums used to think ghosts traveled the lines. Their temples now grow blackberry vines, and the fog surrounds, muffling all sounds as I speak plaintively toward the divine. Hello, is there anybody there?
Well, everybody, I hope that. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, Nick, you're supposed to be quiet until I bring you in. Okay, sorry. I didn't know you were just going to start. I thought you were imagining and then you were going to tell me. No, I was just going to okay. go for it. Okay, and Nick's here, everybody. He's the producer, and, and among other things. I was going to say, I hope you enjoyed Elvie's poetry. And then I wanted to talk to Nick because Nick did the music. And you did the music, didn't you, Nick, for Elvie's poetry? I did the music, yeah. I, uh, well, I really appreciate your holding uh, her words with your music. I imagine it's pretty meaningful to do it for someone who's a friend. Well, it's, it's funny because I've had thousands of hours of conversations with her. I've taught classes with her. I've been in her workshops. She's been in my workshops. Um, and a poet is a thing like <laughs> number 10 on the list of things that I, that I think of her when I, when I think of what she does. Um, and, um, you know, she, she's a healer. She's a, uh, she's an herbalist. She's a tarot reader. She's an astrologist. She's a, she's a rape crisis mediator. I've been with her many times talking at like one in the morning and she gets a call from a stranger, a friend of a friend who's in crisis and needs help because they had to leave their house and she'll go into the other room and take this call and help them in, in this crisis. Like she is the person <clears throat> that so many people go to on their little phone tree of, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> you know, I've got evil spirits in my house or I've got someone threatening me or I just found out I have cancer or any of those things. So many of those things, people eventually find her and they call her and she deals with it and so at the top of all of those things for me is that she is just like the number one helper that i've ever met of just always there to provide help for people thank you for both now talking about her in a way that makes what i'm about to say make a lot of sense uh and then additionally thank you for taking on what you had to take on in editing the interview i mean we talked for so long we talked for almost two hours probably i mean the file i sent you had to have been almost two hours long right yeah you and her talked for yes and so just that that measures both how much there is going on for her that i mm -hmm. that i talk about in this episode already and how much of she is in the world in so many ways but also how cool it was to connect in, in such a way that it would be easy to not have enough time. Yeah, my pleasure. And she, you know, she talks about that moment, which I remember so clearly. I, w I had never been sadder and more lost than the moment she told me death is everyone's true love. And hearing it back now, I can think of how maybe that's a challenging thing to say to somebody at that low point, because it can sort of sound like an encouragement just to check out but i do she is so many times offered that perspective in those low moments of you know things that you don't get from even religion a lot of times just this this idea of like there, there's this deeper uh rhythm and harmony to things that that um that are just bigger than you and i, I just i was uh, that thing specifically was so comforting she's right it was probably like 4 45 in the morning <laughs> sitting in a car at south by southwest which is like already the end of the world or feels like it and um just um yeah i'm glad that she got to share that with you yeah cool anything else before we go um 
No, just just proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I was just crossing my fingers that you'd say that. <laughs> I'm proud of you too. Thanks for doing this show with me. Your work is is so good on it, and and you are a version of of uh, of her. You know, like you do so much in the world. Um, so it's nice to get to do one of those things with you. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. And I would say that too. See you next time. <laughs> like, no, you won't. <laughs> Definitely not that medium. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Wait, did you? <laughs> yeah, that's the end. Seriously. What? Bye, everybody. <laughs>